I thought when we started CS in schools that it'd be hard to raise money, it'd be hard to get industry engaged, it'd be hard to build materials, it'd be hard to figure out how to scale a program like this. Um, all those things are moderately hard, but the hardest thing of all is convincing a principal, a deputy principal, a head of teaching and learning and a cohort of teachers to step out of their comfort zone and do something really different at their school. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Workshop, a podcast about software and the people who build it. I'm your host, Meredith Luff. I co-founded Anvil, the platform for building full-stack web apps entirely in Python. So I meet a lot of developers who build interesting things, but of course they all got their start somewhere. And for this episode, I'm talking to Hugh Williams and Tuan Hun from CS in Schools, an Australian charity that's working to make that opportunity available to every school child in Australia. Both Hugh and Tuan had a pretty hard time getting into programming, and they're quite keen that the developers of the future have an easier time of it. The Australian Computer Society and Deloitte are estimating right now that there's going to be about 100,000 open IT jobs in Australia by 2024. There's also a new body called the Tech Council that was just formed, which is sort of a, brings together sort of startups and venture investment firms, and they're saying 240,000 jobs by 2025. So whichever way you look at it, there's going to be hundreds of thousands of jobs open in Australia um, within a few years in, in sort of the broad IT sector. And that's out of a total population of how many? Population about 27 million. Okay. You know, huge number of open jobs. Obviously, um, immigration's not going so well right now in COVID-19 times. And so, you know, we're seeing a huge gap between the demand for qualified IT workers and the supply. And the supply has another has a, has a huge problem, and, and that is that there's only about 7,000 graduates from IT degrees broadly here in Australia every year. So that's postgraduate about 2,000, undergraduate about 5,000. And so you don't have to be very good at maths to realise that, you know, in three years, that's not going to create enough qualified folks to take 100,000 jobs. Um, and you might ask, well, why are so few Australians studying IT degrees? And I think one of the very key reasons is that uh, students are not studying IT subjects in secondary school or high school, as they, they, they'd call it in the US. Um, if, you look at, if you look at the last year of secondary school here in Australia, in a typical state, um, there's you know, about 1,000, 1,500 students taking an IT subject at school. Um, and to give you a sort of sense of magnitude, uh, you know, drama gets an enrollment of about 3,000, accounting gets an enrollment of about 3,000, and biology gets an enrollment of about 15,000. And I love all those subjects. They're all really interesting, but it's fairly surprising, I think, that, that IT courses you know, get half as many students as drama courses well, and, and notably, that's like less than 20% of the people who are going to go on to study this at university. So something is clearly really insufficiently appealing about these courses if the people who are going to go on and make their lives about this stuff don't really want to do it at school. That's right. Um, I, I think I think that's I think that's very true, and there's a lot of sort of uh, Twain perhaps in a moment can sort of comment on the scaling that we have in our in our in our school subjects that make some of these subjects a little bit un, unappealing. Um, but yeah, there's strikingly few students who are studying these IT courses in secondary school. And if you kind of trace the problem back, um, you know, you, you go and look at the sort of middle school subjects, you know, the, the kind of ones where, where it becomes an optional elective. You know, a typical school, if you walked into a typical school in Australia, you would find, you know, 10 or 12 kids taking the, um, taking the elective subject in middle school that's the IT subject. And most of them are boys. Um, so very few girls taking those subjects. 
And, uh, you know, you have vastly less kids taking these subjects than are taking art or home economics or drama or music or, you know, whatever else. You say, well, why, why is that? And, and we think the answer is because kids don't get a really great opportunity in Australia to understand what programming is at the beginning of their middle school journey, the beginning of their secondary school, um, school journey. So if you look at year seven, which in most states in Australia is the first year of secondary schooling. Um, so what age for this international audience? 12, 13. Right. Um, if, you go and, if you go and look at the, the, the schools and, and, and try and understand what's going on, you'll find that 95% plus of the schools in Australia don't have a compulsory computing subject at that level. Um, so the kids, the kids come into high school and they're racing between the maths class, the English class, the science class, geography, history. They've probably got some electives, you know, music, art, language, all these kinds of things. But most kids don't have a compulsory, uh, you know, IT, computing, digital technology subject at that level. So it's hardly unsurprising if the kids aren't getting an opportunity to understand what it is at these really important formative parts of schooling that they don't choose it in their middle school electives and then they don't choose it later on uh, at the end of secondary school and then they don't go and do it as a, as a university um, degree. And so we're trying to solve that problem. We approach schools and we say, look, you know, it really is incumbent upon you to give your kids the opportunity to understand what digital technology is at the beginning of secondary school when they're 12 or 13 years old um, and we will help you do that. We will help you upskill the teachers so that they can teach it. Um, we will give you the materials that you need to teach it all you've got to do is make a commitment that you'll give every kid the opportunity to understand what this is. And if you do that, we will help you succeed. So that, that's really what we're working on here at CS and Schools. When you say IT classes, obviously that covers a huge spectrum. What is the average Australian student actually getting a chance to be exposed to over the course of a typical school career? So I think sadly, the answer is in most schools in Australia, not much. Now, the good news, though, is that Australia has uh, an Australian digital technologies curriculum. Um, and if you go and look at it, I think as a, as a computer scientist, you know, you'd, you'd find it adequate. It's maybe a little bit 1990s for my liking, a little bit systems analysis and design. But I, but I think as, an, as a computer scientist, you know, it generally appeals to my taste. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the good news. Um, most of the states in Australia who, who, are, who do control the education in their states have adopted that Australian digital technologies curriculum with some modification. Mm -hmm. So they've, they've said, look, you know, federally, there's something relevant. Let's take that and let's make that part of the state curriculum. And in many states, they've even said to the public schools, which in Australia here are the, the government-run schools, you must teach this. Um, the, the, the Catholic system here in Australia has also said that, and the independent um, schools can do whatever they want being independent. Mm -hmm. But again, if you, if, you, if you go and actually look at what's happening, so you say, okay, we've got an Australian curriculum, most of the states have adopted it, most of the states have said to the schools you should teach it, but if you go and look at what's actually going on, they're largely not teaching it. And you say, hang on a minute, but it's compulsory. What's going on? And, and the answer really is they don't have the qualified teachers to teach it, and in some cases the principals are not even sure exactly what it is they should be teaching. So, you know, as a computer scientist, you can go and read this curriculum and say, oh, okay, you know, I'm supposed to be teaching, you know, if statements and basic algorithms and all these kinds of things. But as a principal, you know, who's got a broad-based education, you can't even necessarily understand what it's asking you to do, um, which makes it hard for you to make sure it's happening in your school. Mm -hmm. And so 95% plus of the schools are not doing a great job of covering the whole of the curriculum. If you ask it, well, what, 
you know, what is actually going okay, I would say that a lot of schools are doing a good job of teaching kids how to use technology. And so, you know, you get you get a good broad-based education, how to use a computer, you know, manage files in a folder, use Excel, some Photoshop, Word, maybe do some 3D printing, you know, these kinds of things. So you're learning how to use technology and be a competent user of technology. But I'd say most schools are not doing a great job of teaching kids how to create technology, you know, how to actually sort of understand the fundamentals of, of coding, you know, the, the basic things like input and output and if statements, loops, you know, variables, these kinds of things. They're not doing a good job of grounding kids with those, you know, important skills and, and, and therefore, you know, not giving kids the, the grounding that you need to create technology. So having identified this problem, you and it sounds like a couple of mates decided to do something about it. Uh, can you tell me like how that came about? How did you decide, okay, this is a problem, this needs to be solved, and it might as well be us? Look, I, I lived in the US for a long time. So, you know, 12, 13 years in the US, worked for a bunch of US tech companies. I came back to Australia in in the beginning of 2017, and I thought it's time to give something back um, and do something for the country that gave me the opportunity to learn how to be a computer scientist and, and helped create the, the career that I had in the US and I spent a lot of time thinking about what that might be. And I think, you know, earlier on in the conversation, I told you the story of how there's this you know, massive number of open IT jobs, but there's a, there's a problem with creating the supply of folks to take those jobs. And once we sort of really understood that problem, we said, let's just go and solve it. Um, there are 2,730-odd secondary schools in Australia. Let's help all of them develop this capability so that Australia becomes the tech powerhouse it, it could and should be. Um, and so that was sort of the audacious plan in 2017 is, right, let's just go fix this problem. Um, and so with my with my wonderful wife and a school principal uh, here in Victoria, uh, we just decided to create CSN schools and get after solving the problem. Did you always have this plan of we will create teaching materials and train up the teachers to teach with it? Well, you know, initially we were looking for something we could give back to Australia. So we had the aperture very, very wide. Um, it took us a while to kind of refine down to this particular problem. Uh, but once we once we'd figured out that this was a problem, we sort of went global and studied who else was solving this problem and and how they were solving it. I think the particular program that resonated with us was Microsoft's Teals program in the US. Mm -hmm. um, so Microsoft partners with about five hundred schools across the US to do something fairly similar to what we're doing, but they do it for the the, the sort of pointy end of secondary school. So they help teachers over a two year period develop the skills to teach their final year students uh, how to code. Um, and we thought, well, that's interesting. Um, we, we love how they're doing it and that's that's interesting. But at some level, you know, you, you're, you're helping kids who've already decided to do IT, to do IT better um, when, when, you're, when you're working with kids in the final part of secondary school. We thought it was a more impactful thing to help make sure that every kid got the opportunity to learn how to code at the beginning of secondary school. Because if you can do that, you're creating this huge number of kids at the top of the funnel um, who might then choose it in middle school, who might then go on choose it in secondary school and might go then to choose it at university. And, and so we thought while it's harder to, to convince a school to give every kid the opportunity at the beginning of secondary school, it's actually likely to be more impactful long-term to go and solve that problem. So we like Teals' model, but we thought um, we wanted to apply it to the beginning of, of secondary school. Um, and then very soon after that, I called up my friend Tuan, um, who I'd worked with for 20 years. 
um, and you know, is probably Australia's most qualified digital technologies teacher. I mean, he's had a great career in the US, and then he's come back and become a teacher, and um, is doing amazing work at at Halebury. I called up my friend Twan and said, "Twan, you got to help me." Um, and Twan and I have been on this four year journey together. So yeah, uh, Twan, do you want to talk a little bit about sort of how you got into it, and then maybe what you do for CS in schools? Yeah, so um, it started off. Uh, I'd always wanted to kind of uh, being a teacher was always something that that I had always loved and I always imagined. So, you know, after working in the in the industry for a while and working with you in the in the US for a while, you know, coming back to Australia. But what were you doing then? What was I doing there? So, so um, I worked with you at uh, at Microsoft for a while. We worked on worked on Bing, uh, the lovely search engine uh, at Microsoft, and then. Um, and then I did some stuff in Xbox, so I was always kind of a bit of a gamer, and I liked the creative side. So I was in there for a little bit, and then uh, Hugh moved moved over to eBay, and I kind of followed him about a year or so later down to eBay. Um, so around about that time, that's when I kind of decided to come back to Australia and, and pursue my my teaching degree. Um, so yeah, so coming from that the same type of uh, background. Uh, like same type of motivation a little bit with you, um, yeah. you know, having having enjoyed coding, having just kind of reaped the benefits from it, and and also just thinking it's a it's a wonderful, intrinsically exciting and fulfilling kind of uh, work. I wanted to kind of bring that to to my students as well, and I knew, and I knew um, I didn't do the kind of um, top down zoomed in research that that Hugh had so diligently done, but I just knew intuitively that when I was at school and just chatting with other students, they weren't getting the type of um, uh, programming and, and coding and creating type of experiences that they should be and that that they, that they could be. So I wanted to bring that on a small scale to my students in the classroom. And then so when Hugh reached out with this you know, grand vision, I, I so wanted to be plugged into that. Um, I knew I was making you know, small gains at the, at the classroom level, but yeah, I wanted to be part of that effort and, and, and make a difference there. So when Hugh reached out to me, he was looking for some, some help with developing um, that kind of introductory course where we were just starting at the top of the funnel with the year sevens, which is the first year of, of secondary education here in Australia. Um, and so I was more than happy to jump on board. And that was the time when we thought about, you know, kind of very low level details. What languages should we use, right? And what should we be teaching? And and how do you teach variables? You know, so... Um, well, I kind of want to get into that. So you've got a bunch of 12, 13 year olds they are at that perfect stage where they are ripe to, for at least some of them, to be inspired by first encountering this. And that, you know, that, that is going to give them the fire that's going to allow them to drag themselves through whatever obstacles the education system uh, has set up for them once they know this is a thing they can do and a thing they can enjoy. So what do you do with a bunch of 12, 13 year olds who've never met this stuff before? What do you start out with? What do you teach them? Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating question because um, it's not like maths, right? And it's not like English where they just have to do it. Um, with this approach, we really had to kind of engage them. And so, I mean, the, the first really thing that we do as teachers is we just reflect back on our own experiences, right? Like, so what what kind of drew me into coding and what kind of drove my friends into coding as well? And for me anyway, it was kind of that interactive, visual, um, immediate nature of, of creation, right? So, um, so yeah, kind of really just tapped into that. And the, my, one of my favorite quotes uh, that has ever been written, the magic of myth and legends has come true in our time. One types the correct incantation and a display screen comes to life showing things that never were nor will be. 
Exactly. It is it is magic. And and I think that's what students miss because if they really got that experience, I think they would love it. And and they we wouldn't see this this such a lack of, of numbers in the later years because you know they, they just hadn't been experienced to it uh, to it earlier. So yeah, so so when we went about creating our first course, it was it was really about kind of honing in on that, um, drawing in a bit of creativity. We were using Replit. Um, so that was that you know that online uh, editor, and it was great because mm-hmm. they just jumped in and they can totally have to download anything. So we had to be aware of of the whole kind of logistics of having schools install software. So we kind of had to to battle through all that stuff. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, just drawing upon that that input, that Apple print statements, right, and then the input statement, and then adding some colors in there. And that was the nice thing about working with CS in schools. It was that flexibility for us to kind of. Um, be a little bit more more creative. Uh, we had the digital uh, technologies curriculum, but we also had the you know we also had the opportunity to to kind of mold it a little bit and, and represent it in a way that was possibly more exciting and more and more fulfilling for uh, for students. So these days, when one of your year sevens arrives in your course, like what do they do? language do they learn how how much do you how far can you get them in that first year uh, before they decide whether this is something they want to continue with yeah so the way that our courses are structured they're, they're almost like little jigsaw pieces that you can kind of piece together and and in a way build up a, a bit of a journey but the the courses are laid out in such a way where there is an element of um, presentation and discussion so there's just the traditional slides there are questions peppered throughout to to quizzes, little multiple choice quizzes, like which is the correct print statement and would leave out a quotation mark at the end, right? And then they identify, oh, that one won't work. Um, and then there are a series of just exercises towards the end. They're doing it in Python. Um, the Year 7 course is, is, is on, was on Replit, but we're moving it towards a Sculpt editor, a Sculpt-powered online editor um, inspired by, by Anvil in, in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, as a maintainer on that project, that, that's music to my ears. I know. It's a wonderful effort there, Meredith. It's, it's, it's a lovely, lovely, amazing effort that just opens up that accessibility for, for students. Um, but, yeah, so they're, they're coding away. We have a, we have a series of um, increasingly more, more difficult type of challenges, but it starts off pretty basic, you know, the first exercise, we give them some pre-filled in code with some underlines, some underscores, and they have to, mm-hmm. to fill in the command. So we really wanted to build up that sense of success in students. And like you were saying, not necessarily focusing on the top 10% or the, the, the 10% that had already done coding, you know, in, the, in their bedrooms at home of the holidays, mm-hmm. which, which we, prob- we three probably were to some extent, right? But we wanted to focus the, the, the meat of the mountain who didn't do that. But um, yeah, through these exercises, they can experience that sense of success and then also experience that sense of, of wonder and creativity. Um, so yeah, they, they go through, they do these exercises, they're gradated. So the first one is pretty easy. The second one, you know, they, they have to type in some stuff. And then the third one, you know, they actually have to, to code the program from. And by the end of the year, how far have they got? So you, you probably appreciate this, Merited. So um uh, text adventure games. Mm-hmm. So uh, year seven, uh, at the end of the year seven course, the intro introduction course, they they basically write a um, a a little adventure game. So it's just text based. It's just locations. Um, they're practicing, you know, loops. They're practicing um, conditional statements, variables, right? So you're you're getting basic program structure, a little bit of I/O, a little bit of interactivity. 
necessarily text-based so that they can concentrate on the basics. Correct. And then the, the text uh, adventure game also has that nice element of creativity where they can, you know, those mm -hmm. kids who might be like, I'm not technical, but I love writing stories or, or creating things. They can draw upon that and bring yeah, yeah. that in as well. So we were looking to kind of meld all these little disciplines together, which is what programming is all about, right? It's, it's about breathing life into all of these other disciplines. So... You get some amazing games too. Yeah, you get kids who say, "I'm going to do a Bachelor TV show." Um, <laughs> you, you get you get kids who are going to you know do your, your classic kind of Dungeons and Dragons adventure. You get you get kind of these these you know Secret Service sort of spy ones. I mean, you get all kinds of things. And we we go out through a little diversion where we teach them how to use color and do ASCII art. Mm -hmm. um, and which you know, which isn't core computer science, but it but it certainly you know teaches you a little bit about functions and how to call them and things. But but say it was a fairly important part of my learning of this stuff. Yeah, and they love it. So you, you sort of bring together these basic programming concepts with with some color and some ASCII art. You get these amazing things created by these these 12, 13 year olds, and some of them spend hundreds of hours on these things. You know, they they come up with programs that are thousands of lines long. Well, and like that's what you want. That point. That for the point where somebody can actually, they start seeing the feedback loop, some people will really catch and yep. they will pour that time into it. Of course yep, it will. It's amazing. Actually, before we go further on this, because there's a ton more to discuss here, I want to take a little detour ourselves and ask how each of you first got inspired by this stuff and ended up taking your career this way. Hugh, how did you get started? So, you know, I'm a lot older than both of you, I think, but um, in 1976, um, my parents owned a post office. So in Australia, you could own a licensed post office. So they weren't all run by the government. And um, I think my mum and dad figured out this wasn't a way to, you know, to, 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 build, to build wealth. And they were, uh, you know, working phenomenally hard. And they're both pretty smart people. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they started looking at sort of jobs in the paper. And my, my dad found a job as a programmer working for ESO, which is, you know, Exxon in lots of parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And he'd never done any programming, but he had a, a, a background as an electrician. Um, and so he basically wrote a job application saying that he was a pretty good programmer um, with no programming background. Right. Um, and he got an interview. So, so he and mum bought a Fortran book in the 1970s. Um, and sat around the kitchen table with a pencil and a piece of paper and figured out how to program in Fortran with no access to a computer. And then Dad went and did the job interview, passed with flying colours, and now he's a fully-fledged computer programmer for uh, for SO here in Australia. Um, you know, he's got a job as a Fortran programmer. Now, of course, the, the, so I watched my parents learn how to program at the, the, the dining table when I was what would have been uh, seven years old. Um and there's all these Fortran books lying around the house. So I'm like, I'll, I'll just get with the program, if you'll excuse the pun. So I just started reading the Fortran books and writing programs on pieces of paper. And, um, of course, Dad had the, now had access to a mainframe computer. Um, and so I could write out these, you know, really simple programs. And he could go and uh, put them on punch cards and, uh, you know, take them to work. And, uh, and then bring me back the big core dumps that happened when my programs didn't work. And, you know, I'd figure out what the problem was and fix the problem and he'd go oh and type them in again and eventually they would work, you know? And so I'd print out the times tables or, or whatever else it was, or I'd do a guess a number game and dad would guess the numbers and then bring me back the output and show that he guessed the right number in 12 steps or whatever it was. Uh, hangman, you know, all the classic things that, that you do. Um, and so that was great. And then uh, dad, again, being a, being sort of an electrical type person, electronically minded, he then went and built a computer in 1978 um, so he built it from 
Scratch with the circuit diagrams out of an Australian mm-hmm. magazine. Um, and it was based on a, a chip called the 2650, the Signetics 2650, um, which probably nobody's ever heard of. Um, and he basically built us a computer. And so, um, so I was the first person for hundreds of kilometers around to have a computer built by my dad. And so I started programming in Assembler and then in BASIC in like 1978 um, on this on this obscure chip. And like, where were you? I like uh, apologies for for asking the really probing questions, but how old were you? How far were you through school at this point? Uh, I would have been. Let me think about that. I would have been in sort of the third grade, something like that. So I was pretty young. I was probably seven or eight, something like that. Um, and yeah, and, you know, and, and like a lot of us, I think it just just this massive light bulb went off. I mean, this is awesomely great fun. And I started writing text adventures and, you know, all all these kinds of things. And so where was the gap between there and the moment where you realized, hey, this could be a thing I could be when I grow up? Well, it was a huge gap, I guess, at that point in time. I mean, you know, this is around the time when Microsoft was created and, you know, Bill and Paul Allen are off creating Microsoft and, you know, Apple getting created and things. So, you know, it wasn't really a thing, you know, what my dad was doing was the typical career was you became a programmer in a corporation Mm -hmm. um, and worked on mainframe computers. I mean, look, I I did obviously do computer science at university. That was the late eighties, early nineties. I think even at that point, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like it is today. I mean, you know, the, the web really didn't exist until the mid 1990s, you know, startups didn't really happen until the late 1990s. And so Ooh, a whole bunch of semiconductor startups would disagree with you there, but yeah, like the classic software startup as we know it today. Yeah. For, for software, for software. If I, if I'd grown up in the U S um, I, I think it would have been different. You know, I think I would have gone to a, you know, a U.S. university and maybe got a job at a Microsoft or something like that. But in Australia, you know, when I was at university, you know, you were really studying to be a programmer and go and work for a bank or a telecommunications corporation or whatever else it was. And, you know, I'm pretty passionate about computer science, but it it just wasn't like it is today. Yeah, I'm getting like a really consistent story of like the amount of drive it required for you to get to to a degree in this stuff and beyond was like that is above and beyond what we should be requiring of the average kid to get into this industry. Yeah, and I remember things like at university having to write a compiler in the second year of university, you know, and um, things like that were phenomenally hard. And obviously, you couldn't go to Stack Overflow and you know look stuff up. I mean, you got a you got this really crappy yeah. textbook sort of, you know, how to write a compiler and, you know, you're sitting there with your IBM PC, you know, in, in the bedroom with no internet. And it's like, you know, please write a compiler. Oh, yeah. You've got three weeks. Um, and so it was, yeah, it was pretty hard. <laughs> um, I still remember that as one of the sort of harder moments in my, in my computer science, computer science studies, but it kind of, kind of got through, but it definitely was a different pursuit to the pursuit it is today. And then you left there and you joined Microsoft. Is that right? Um, no, no, long story, actually. Um, I'll make it really fast. So I actually started my own company out of university. You know, we built software uh, for the telecommunications industry, the property industry, and the oil industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I did that for about five years. It was reasonably successful. And then I went back and did a PhD in computer science, um, a really a, a data structures and algorithms PhD um, in, in search, in sort of information mm-hmm. retrieval. Um, that got me pretty interested in going back to industry. Um and so I had a job off from Google in the late 1990s that I probably should have taken. Um, oh, that's one of those ones you look at the rear, the rear view mirror and go, ouch. Yeah, there's lots of people with that story too. You know, there's, there's, uh, I've, met, I've met several people who didn't take the job as CEO of Google. Um, 
that ultimately ended up being taken by Eric Schmidt. So there's, there's probably 20, 30 people around the Silicon Valley who've had opportunities to be execs at Google at the beginning who didn't take it. And, uh, <laughs> oh, well. Anyway, sorry, carry on. Anyway, so didn't take a Google job, didn't take a Yahoo job in the early 2000s, but ended up taking a Microsoft job in, uh, I think it was 2004. Um, so, yeah, and then it was off to the US and, you know, big log run, big log run in the US. Awesome. Well, I am very glad I asked that question. Uh, Juan, what's your story? Well, no, no, my my story is not as uh, star-studded as Hugh's. Um, mm -hmm. But just, I mean, just very briefly, it's, it's interesting because Hugh, when you're talking about the motivation and the drive that it takes, you know, uh, people like us to get into the field, um, sometimes it, it came from family members, right? And and we were just lucky. So Hugh had a fantastically smart, intelligent mm -hmm. dad, right? For me, it was my brother. Uh, so I have, I have my brother to thank. So we were refugees from Vietnam and he was starting up a new life and, and he was an interpreter. So he's significantly older than me, 16 years older than me. So so he served as a father figure to me in, in a lot of different ways. But he gave me a book because um, he knew computers were a thing. He wasn't in computers, but he knew that that was happening. This was in the, um, the mid 80s, the mid to late 80s. I knew computers were happening. So uh, so he, he bought, I remember going to this used discount, this discount book bargain bin store, and he bought these books, which were for, which were programming, these simple programming books for the BBC Micro, right? And we were in Australia. We don't, we didn't have BBC Micros, but he bought these books home for me. And there was like a, there was a book of puzzles and a book of games. And they would just have these program listings that were in, <laughs> that were in, you know, BBC Micro Basic. And I didn't even have a computer, but he, he bought it for me for some reason just to have a read. So I had a read through it, but I, I, I loved the idea of the games. There was Hangman and there was, you know, the sliding puzzles and all that, but I couldn't, I didn't have any way of coding it up. So he bought me an Atari computer and he wasn't very computer literate. He just knew that computers were important. He bought me an Atari computer and he came with Atari Basic, but the Basic was not compatible. So I was trying to type in these programs and it wouldn't work. Yeah. And I was so disappointed and frustrated. So one of the first things I did was I tried to port the programs across so that they could work. Uh -huh. And so, you know, in that effort, I had to, you know, learn that the, I read the manual, you know, it was all about, you know, they, they came with the manual, right? You bought a computer and it would come with a programming manual and you would kind of read it and, and kind of figure it out. So I think, uh, and it's funny talking to some of my students now who got into programming independently, they kind of followed a similar similar route, right? They were self-driven, they, they were drawn by the appeal of it, and they they undertook their own kind of learning, right? Um, so I think that's a common thread, and, and that's the, the thread that's kind of created these kind of self-starting kind of programmers who, in, in the absence of a, a very strong digital curriculum, have kind of created that pathway for themselves. So, you know, I wanted to kind of bring that to students who didn't have dads, or didn't have brothers like we did, right? And have that be that person be the teacher in the class. So anyway, they started from there, and then I did my university degree, and and I started off working the bank, um, coding C plus plus for the ANZ Bank, and I realized I didn't really kind of want to do this. I didn't want to be in this corporation kind of corporate lifestyle. So I went off and, and became no, I went off to do a games. Uh, I went off and worked for a games company for a while. Um, and then we got married and, and then I thought, oh, you know, maybe maybe tone back down on the kind of the, the crunch time and the sleeping under the desk type type kind of deal. Uh, and then that's when I decided to go teaching. And then when the, the Microsoft opportunity came up, I was kind of saying no more corporate lifestyle for me. But when when the Microsoft role through Hugh came up, I was going, oh, I have to give this a go. You know, I kind of have to see what this is like in the US. So so that's why I, I kind of decided to take the plunge there and, and it kind of kind of came back 
full circle back in teaching. You you mentioned teaching beforehand. So like teaching was had always been the thing you were driving towards. You took a sort of diversion through uh through through building search engines uh, and then ended back up to where where you wanted to be in the first place. That's <laughs> that's right. Among the uh, expansion of things that CS in schools is now doing, you are now using Anvil as part of your teaching. Do you want to tell me about that, about how it fits in, uh, why you chose to use it? Yep. From the beginning, we thought Python is, is a great language to get these U7s engaged in and, and judging by the out, you know the output that these kids have done with their adventure games. I think it was the right choice. Um, you know, it's, it's a great uh, language with, you know, easy to understand syntax and it's got indenting and all that type of thing. So as we kind of progressed along um, the, 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 the spectrum of courses, we reached about the year nine level. So the, here, here you're talking about like what, 14, 15 year olds? 14, 14 15 year olds, exactly. Um, and then Hugh had actually um, teed up a lot of industry-based um uh, projects and industry-based collaboration opportunities. So we have companies, uh, carsales.com, domain.com.au, which is uh, similarly a place to, to search for real estate and, 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 um, and buy houses and property that way. Um, so through those wonderful collaboration opportunities, those companies had, had offered um, uh, you know, the chance for students to, to work with them on projects and maybe build some kind of an app. Um, so we thought, look, you know, if we were to continue along what we had been building in Python and Replit, which is all console based, you know, it probably wouldn't be as appealing, wouldn't kind of meet those requirements as well. And it wouldn't give the students more of that flavor of web apps or, or, or kind of, um, yeah, these online apps might be. So, yeah, well, they, they want to do something that feels real. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It feels real. Right? They, they want to write some code that actually pops a button yep. they can click yep. or a text box or, you know, ideally, a URL they can give to their mates. Yeah, so we're, we're looking around and it's like, okay, we were, we've already grounded them in Python and all bar Anvil that I could find were all in JavaScript. You know, like JavaScript, React, Bootstrap, all of these other frameworks, which is JavaScript is, I find, really difficult to teach to like, year, you know, year seven, year eight. It's, it's so difficult. Well, the thing about teaching JavaScript is you're never just teaching JavaScript the language. You're teaching... JavaScript, the language, and HTML, and like the browser DOM, and whatever framework you're using to drive it, something like React. And you're having to, just like the sheer quantity of information that needs to sort of enter the student's brain in order for them to be able to do anything that they recognize as an interactive program is huge. It's gigantic. It is. It I mean, is. How, how many hours a week? do you get with your students in like year seven and eight? Well, in year seven, we only, well, at my school anyway, we have uh, we have three hours, but the CS in schools program really only expects an hour a week, right? Is that right, Hugh? Two hours a week. Two hours a week. Well, yeah, the typical the typical school, we get two hours a week for about 10 weeks. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's 20, 20 hours of content. Some some schools will get, will get more. But in that 20 hours of content, you've got to assume, you've got to design for the average or even the minimal case. In that twenty hours, you can like you can get people through a you know, the basic program structure and bits and basic I/O. I imagine you're not going to make much of a dent on like React and the browser DOM model and no. browser event driven I/O and no, forget it, forget it. Basically, I mean it's just not it's just not practical. So you know we we made the decision at these early years to to use sort of console based environment and print and input and 
just string variables to start, you know, sim- simple loops, decisions and get to a text adventure game. And that's a, that's a lot for a school and for a school student at the beginning of secondary school. Um, and so it isn't until this year nine level where we, where we switch to Anvil and add in sort of, you know, richer, richer presentation, building web apps, those kinds of things. And, and you know, we even find, Tuan will probably tell you more about this in a moment, but we even find it's a big leap to Anvil. Um, let alone, you know, let alone all the things that you you spoke about with JavaScript. I mean, it's just just not practical in the school environment. Yeah, it, it is this challenge where we are building up the skill level because um, they're learning. Yeah, well, once again, we're aiming at the average here because students like you would have been, you know, blasting through this stuff anyway, right? But the ones who are kind of in the middle, um, yeah, they, they really do need to be scaffolded. And it was a challenge where, you know, we're still building these foundational knowledge, if statements, loops, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then we want to get them to do something real world. And there's a bit of a gap there, right? Um, uh, you know, build even, you know, the buttons and the layout and the, present, the rich presentation, that does require a leap from the from the concepts of, of console print and event-driven, right? That's a new thing. And and even classes and the self dot variable is freaking out students, right? So all of <laughs> all of those things are, are hurdles. Um, but, you know, Anvil was really, you know, the, the, the clear kind of candidate there for, you know, it's, it's grounded in Python, so they can they can leverage that. And our challenge is really, yeah, just trying to trying to um, meet that goal where they're they're building something real with what they're what they've learned in year seven and eight, and and trying to and trying to bridge that gap. So, I think Anvil is has, has been great for doing that presentation. I think there's still some work that you know we need to do amongst ourselves, you know, to see what we can do to kind of to kind of more bridge, you know, just to bridge that gap a little bit more smoothly. Um, because yeah, we do find students struggling a little bit with yeah those things yeah. self dot. You know, all these these um, functions and these methods with the two stars, you know, what's all that about, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Can I ask, what alternatives were you considering and sort of wh- what would you have done had Anvil not been there for you? You probably all across all this merited, but there's that Remy, no, the Python simple GUI one where, which produces a, um, a, a browser-based interface. So it does a similar thing in the sense that it, it produces, it generates uh, HTML uh, controls and then hooks it into uh, a, a running um, Python server in the background and then communicates like like just yeah from the from the browser to the to the Python server through the HTTP sockets. Um, so we, we we did something like that. Um, I tried to actually build up a little framework where they can construct UIs by you know adding buttons. I have to instantiate button um, objects and adding that. I think we tried that, but. I think that was a leap too far, and there was no visual editor, um, and it was slow, and 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 so there were several things um, that we that was the first kind of iteration. Um, the other the other thought we had was to sort of go a completely different path, so you know, do some hardware slash robotics. We thought quite a lot about that. We had a false start with a robotics course. Um, so that's that I've seen is honestly like a, a remarkably common option. So I mean, I'm coming to you from Cambridge, home of the Raspberry Pi Foundation, who are also responsible for the UK computer science curriculum in schools. Uh, they're a great bunch, uh, and they like the Raspberry Pi crew have lent pretty hard into physical computing, basically as an answer to this problem that like kids want to be able to push a button and strange as it may seem, putting a button on a screen is forbiddingly difficult uh, from in most programming situations. And it's in fact easier to put a physical button on the desk in front of them and physically plug in some wires and make a light light up when you push it. 
Uh, and so, yeah, you wouldn't be the only people to have gone that route uh, with saying that, you know, pixels are too hard. Uh, we are going to build physical computing, which is like simultaneously, I can totally see it. And I've seen kids get great results out of it. But man, what an indictment of software where like drawing the pixels of a button on the screen is harder to wrap your head around than actual like real world interface electronics. Totally. And look, it's been that way for 30 years. I mean, if you sort of, for those of you who are around in the 1990s, I mean, you know, when Borland was around and those kinds of things, you used to get these these environments for creating, um, you know, Windows 3 apps. And it was basically impossible. I mean, the, the leap between sort of what, you know, what you could do in, what most programmers could do in a DOS-like environment and, and yep. what was required to do something in a Windows environment was ridiculous. And I think there's been 30 years of that now. Um, and I don't know why. Well, I see, I, I'm going to stand up in defense here of Visual Basic and Delphi which actually hit a lot of that that sweet spot of you could have a visual design, you could click a button, yep. you could run a little bit of basic code, you could pop up, up, up a message, you could create something that, that worked and you could, you know, could actually run on your computers. But then the web came along and washed it away like so many sandcastles and we were back in a world where, it's true. Uh, you know what, it might actually be easier to buy a physical push button uh, if you want to make something <laughs> actually feel like it's working. I also think, you know, it, it, a lot of C, C++ programmers, Pascal programmers, these kinds of things never went near Visual Basic and, and, and those kinds mm -hmm. of things. You know, Delphi, they sort of looked down their nose at them. Um, and so I think, I think there was this whole army of programmers trying to sort of do visual environments in Windows and for the web using C, mm -hmm. which, which, was, which was sort of a fairly disastrous pursuit. Um, so it's uh, yeah, it's been th 30 years of, 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 of hard work for, I think, for most of us. Well, I mean, like, push me too far, and, and, and I will confess that what I really believe is that there's an awful lot of Stockholm Syndrome in this industry, that a whole bunch of people have suffered through learning how to create something the hard way and an unnecessarily hard way. And having done that, they will then prize the knowledge they gained along the way so tightly that they won't see that actually there might be an easier route to the summit of this particular mountain. Yeah, 100%. As educators, we have to recognize that maybe that's how we kind of got our skills. But um, if you want to appeal to a larger audience, you have to look beyond yourself. Otherwise, you're just like you're just attracting people that were the same as you and the numbers are going to stay constant. Right. If you want to grow the numbers, you have to look beyond yourself. So it's always something that that I know I do. Um, in the class all the time. I always be aware of the biases that I have for myself and always say, no, 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 I have to, I have to look more broadly. Um, I, I mean, and Anvil, I mean, the, the, the thing with Anvil is uh, I think it really does kind of give that broader access, you know, with Python, developing stuff. I mean, it's front-end, back-end, love that. I don't see a lot of other, I couldn't find any other ones really that, that do the same thing. So, um, yeah, I, I thought that was that was a, a really nice thing that you guys do. And I know you never had the education sector in mind, um, but it, it just it really did fit well in a lot of ways uh, for us to, to, to build on that. Well, I think oh, we've had the education sector in mind. We know as, as well as you do that selling a product into the education sector is not a fantastic business. But we, I mean, we come out of a teaching background ourselves. Uh, Anvil came out of uh, Ian's and my PhDs at the University of Cambridge, working on human-computer interaction and uh, usable programming systems. And like we did a whole bunch of undergrad and volunteer school teaching. And like this was definitely something we had in mind. Like, what would we want as the tinkering interested kids we were when we were in year seven? Mm. 
what would we have wanted to be able to encounter if we were doing it in today's like web and app dominated world and that was very much in the back of our minds even if we don't sell the schools these days we just give it away uh that that was that was always a thing we were asking ourselves so following the theme of broadening out like what are the results what what have you seen have you managed to quantify how much broader you've managed to to cast the net these days it's only our fourth year and it's only three of those years we've been in the classroom. So we spent the first year figuring out what to do and, and building building materials and recruiting industry to get involved and those kinds of things. And then we've been in the classroom, you know, three three complete years now. And I can tell you the story of that. So in our in our first year, which was 2019 in the classroom, um, we managed to convince eight Victorian schools, so all in our state, uh, to be part of the program. You know, we found some some government schools, some independent schools and a Catholic school. And, uh, and that went great. I think we had um, eight schools, 12 teachers, about 800 kids. Um, and it went well. I think Twine and I had to rebuild the materials three times to, to, get, it, to get the radar right for, that, for the median student and the typical teacher. And so a lot of kind of testing, iterating, learning mm-hmm. with these very brave schools um, working with us in, in the first year. So 800 kids, 12 teachers, eight schools. Um, we had the goal at the end of that year to double the size of the program, and our and our our notion of doubling is double the number of schools. So we wanted to get sixteen schools in in twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. We were we were fortunate to get twenty one schools, so we beat our goal by a good margin. Uh, I think those those twenty one schools were across twenty seven campuses, so we got the largest um, independent school in Victoria, which is Halebury, where Twan works. And I think they have five campuses in Victoria. Is that right? Four. In, in Victoria, and then one, yeah, on a Darwin. Okay, and then one in Darwin, one in China, um, and so we we got up to twenty one schools. That was about a little bit over three thousand kids, um, and you know thirty something teachers. So that was that was great. And you're serving this with what size of organisation? Because you're having to do a whole bunch of teacher training, which is going to be like a labour intensive sort of operation, isn't it? Yes, and and the 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 thing that we do there is we engage industry to help us, and so we go to companies like Seek Car Sales, uh, Domain, these the companies that that Twan mentioned earlier on, and we ask them to donate volunteer time from their software engineers, mm-hmm. and so their software engineers are trained by us through a training program, and then they spend time working directly one on one with the teacher, often in the classroom, to help that teacher upskill. So we're a very volunteer driven program. Um, the three founders are volunteers, and so we we were fairly cheap program to run, and we scale pretty well. And so, how many of those software engineers do you did you have as of twenty twenty? In twenty twenty, um, I'd have to check the numbers, but it was it was a, it was uh, more than twenty and less than thirty. So you know, significant okay. number. And serving sixteen schools, that doesn't feel you know completely out of whack. No, no, no. It's um, it works out to about uh, you know one to two volunteers per typical per typical school. Um, and, and, and recruiting volunteers is not a problem that we have. We have a lot of enthusiasm from industry because there's lots of people like us out there, right, who, who didn't get the experience in secondary school that they wanted. Mm-hmm. They're often young, motivated people with some spare time, and they're super motivated to help solve the problem. So, um, so we're very, very lucky to have uh, a lot of support. I run an organization stuffed with such people. The number of, I mean, we, we look for them because Anvil is, as well as, you know, being built to be that thing we wished we'd encountered in school. For the, regrettably, most of people who still don't get those opportunities, uh, a lot of people will be coming later in life and will will want something they can pick up and get going with quickly. And in a, a, as we recruit for the team that builds it and uh, supports it, and advocates for it 
uh, we've ended up picking up picking up a whole bunch of people who have had that experience of you know not really being encouraged in schools. Yeah, there's lots of people. There's lots of good-hearted people out there who want to solve this problem. Um, I think we're both yeah we're both lucky to have them involved. And somebody like that, somebody who's had to like late in life uh, take the courageous plunge through like a boot camp or train themselves up in their spare time or doggedly work his way up from, you know, well, I'm going to be a consultant in a company that uses software and then I'll go to get some sideways exposure and then I'm going to move up to being, you know, to uh, doing a part-time degree in my spare time and then move up to a junior developer and move up from, like, people who've had to sort of crawl over that broken glass to get there, like, you get them in post and boy, are they motivated to ensure that the next generation doesn't have to do what they did. Absolutely. And I think some of our most motivated volunteers are just like that. You know, they're people who had a serendipitously fell into computing or had a rough time getting there. And they're like, this shouldn't happen to the young people of today. Um, we, we need to fix this. Yes. I, like either everyone should have the opportunities I had or no one should have to have the pain that I have. I guess you've got to be strongly motivated one way or the other, right? Yeah, spot on, spot on. So anyway, yeah, so second year, 21 schools, we beat our goal of 16. And then our goal for this year was 32 schools and we beat that by a good margin and we have 41 schools in the program this year, which is getting up on 10,000 kids um, and exactly 150 teachers. Um, and so you can guess you can guess what the goal is for next year. Yeah, I, I think I'm perceiving a pattern here. I can do logarithms. Yep. And we're just going to keep on doing that. Keep on doubling. Uh, powers of two. And uh, we're already up to 55 schools. Our recruiting is going pretty well. So we're pretty confident we'll get to 64 schools for, uh, for, for next year, which should be up around 15,000 kids, 18,000 kids, somewhere, somewhere around there. So, you know, starting to make a, starting to make a decent dent. Um, my, my, my two co-founders, Selena and, and Christy, um, have really one, one rule, and that is that there's got to be more girls learning to code in our programs than boys at all times. And that is the case. So I think we're getting close to 60% girls. I wanted to steer you back to this because that's that's something that, like as I mentioned in our recruiting, this, you know, the fact that we end up with a lot of our team who weren't served the traditional way, you know, we have ended up with a minority male workforce by being open to such people. And like, I want to ask you, like, how you address this problem? How do you end up, you know, what is it you think about the way that you run these courses, the way that you do the recruitment that is causing you to have such, by industry standards, unusual recruitment statistics? Look, I think, I think, I guess you get Twan to talk about this in a second, but I think we haven't quite cracked the code, actually. I mean, look, Twan and I are the, 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 the two folks who drive the course development and certainly more Twan than me. And I think... You know, we're we're very we're very male. We 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 learned you know we learned how to how to code by building games and you know and you know we did scroll them shoot them ups as soon as we could learn how to do things with graphics and and so I think we had a very male experience. Uh-huh. Um, I think our volunteers are predominantly male, and so I'm not sure we've 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 entirely cracked the code of sort of what is the most engaging. Um, female-centric thing we could build, um, but we're very, very curious about that. But, but we, you know, but we we do have more girls than boys learning to code in our programs. We have several all-girls schools um, right now. We don't have an all-boys school, so it's 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 co-ed and, and girls schools, mm-hmm. um, and we really lean hard into that. So we we, we try and work, we, we try and focus on underserved schools, girls schools, rural schools, regional schools. 
um, ahead of ahead of everybody else. Uh, what kind of underserved uh, groups are you prioritizing and how are you going about that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, look, so we have a bias towards rural and regional schools. You know, I grew up in in rural in a rural town, um, so uh, so I have a natural bias to want to help kids from the country. Um, so we we just push harder. So we you know we we reach out to more of those schools. We work harder to recruit them. You know, we we've paid people to drive to those schools and mm-hmm. drive back. You know, stay overnight in towns to help the kids in those schools. So we we just sort of lean in a little bit harder with the regional and rural schools than the city schools. Um, Girls' schools we've already we've already mentioned, and then Australia has this um, has this this system of, of of scoring schools, basically looking at the the socioeconomic advantage or disadvantage of the students that are at the school, and mm-hmm. they they figure that out by looking at the parents' population or the guardians' population, um, and so they have this scoring system. And so we know for each school sort of what its socioeconomic sort of score is, if you like, and 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 we we again over-index our energy on schools that have a lower score. Um, so if we have the opportunity to work with a school that has a lower score, then, you know, we're all in. Yep. You know, we, 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 just, we just work harder with that school. We, we make sure we put our best volunteers there. We, we work hard to sort of push the companies to work with them. Um, you know, we, we put more energy generally, generally into it because those schools need us more. Yep. Um, I think when when we're lucky enough to work with one of the large, you know, wealthier independent schools, they just need us a bit less. I mean, we want those schools to succeed as well, but they just don't quite need the same amount of of, of energy. They don't need as much of a push. No. Um, so we just work harder, I think, with when we have those opportunities. And when you work with a school, you said that you have this condition that it should be available to everyone in the school? Yeah. So so basically, you know, when we when we get the opportunity to talk to the principal of the school and the, you know, the school leadership team, we will we will say we will say, look, we, we will work incredibly hard to help you succeed as long as you commit to giving every year seven student the opportunity to learn how to code in the classroom. So you've got to schedule this in the timetable. It's not an after school program, it's not a lunchtime program, it's not an optional program for the year nine students. You've got to schedule it in the timetable. And every single one of your 200,000, whatever it is, year seven students needs to do this for a term. And then we will work incredibly hard to help you. I'd say 90% of the time we get a yes. And then and then there's a lot mm-hmm. of hard work that goes into where do those two hours come from? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, usually it comes from maths. So usually the maths will say, all right, we'll give up, we'll give up an hour or two for one of the terms. So there's four terms. We'll mm-hmm. give up an hour or two for one of those terms. Because this is an adjacent thing, there's some algorithmic thinking in math. The math teachers are generally, you know, curious about it. Yeah. And so generally, that's what will often that's what will happen. Um, but that's always a tough conversation. So the principal gets excited and says yes, but then you've got to have a conversation with the with the head of teaching and learning or the deputy principal, and you've got to have a fight to get the, into the timetable. So generally, that's the path that we follow. These days, we're a little bit in our in our third year, recruiting for our fourth year, we're a little bit little bit more relaxed than that honestly so so sometimes we'll say to a school we'll say look all right all right look tell you what we'll do we'll pilot it with your small group of year nines and we'll see how it goes we'll we'll convince you that this is something you should be doing you'll you'll see that it'll light up your kids um, your teachers will love it and then we'll be back next year and we'll make it compulsory for the year seven so sometimes we will you know as they say two putt this thing Um, but the majority of schools you know um, we 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 um we succeed in getting them in the first year to make it compulsory for um you know the whole population of students at the school. That's awesome. So as we finish up, two questions I always ask. 
And the first is, what's the most surprising thing you've learned over this whole adventure? What has surprised you? How hard it is to drive change in the Australian school system. Is it that the amount of inertia wasn't what it was more than you expected? Or is it like that the sources of resistance weren't what, what you were bargaining on? I, I thought when we started CS in schools that it'd be hard to raise money, it'd be hard to get industry engaged, it'd be hard to build materials, it'd be hard to figure out how to scale a program like this. Um, all those things are moderately hard, but the hardest thing of all is convincing a principal, a deputy principal, a head of teaching and learning and a cohort of teachers to step out of their comfort zone and do something really different at their school. Right. So you're saying, look, you know, you've been successful doing the things that you do, but to to get kids ready, job ready for the future, you need to do something quite different. So you need to change and you need to do something you don't understand how to do. Um, get outside your comfort zone. In some cases, you know, teachers are getting up in front of a class of kids and they know less than the kids. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they've got to accelerate through this process of learning to become experts um, over a, a two-term period in something that, you know, is very foreign to them. And I, I think that's very, very hard for schools to, to, to do that. I mean, I think a lot of schools are doing a great job of developing, you know, the skills in kids for jobs that were relevant in 1995. And it's really hard to, to change that and, and, and be, mm -hmm. you know, getting kids ready for, for careers that are going to be crazy, for careers that we, we, we don't even know exist yet, for, for jobs that, that haven't been defined, for, for, you know, for kids mm -hmm. who are going to go through 10 jobs in their, in their career, learning all these things along the way. I mean, it's just a very different world to be in now than the world we grew up in. And so I think it's very hard to, to get principals and teachers to, to feel that uncomfortable. Um, and, and to be that courageous. And, and so that turns out to be the hardest thing in CS in schools. But when they do it, it's fine. Like we, 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 we make them, we, we help them succeed. I mean, we will do anything to help a principal, you know, a deputy principal, a head of teaching and learning and their cohort of teachers succeed. I mean, that's what we do. And so we really seriously roll up the sleeves and help. But taking that big leap and having the faith in us to do that is really, really hard. Awesome. Tuan, what about you? What surprised you? Yeah, I think Hugh covers it so well. I'll just go, I'll just drill down to the minutiae a little bit, which is just the teaching. And it's kind of like um, what's challenging for me is is just coming from that, coming from that background of a self-taught programmer, et cetera, et cetera, uh, having to create the curriculum and to design it in a way that is scaffolded and takes the students um, through a journey of success. Once again, not the top students, the middle students, and really breaking down that we all have the passion and we all have the drive to teach what we know, but we may not have the skills to actually do that. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, you go from you go from an if statement and you got to talk about conditionals and Boolean comparisons, and then you combine the ands and the also. It's really just stepping through and breaking down how it worked for for me and for others. Because unlike maths and unlike English, which has been taught for hundreds of years, you know, a teaching coding is uh, is a brand new brand new thing. There is no textbook that tells you this is the way to teach for loops, right? This is the way to teach functions. There is no, particularly to high school students, right? So it really is the thing that's hard for me as I work and to build up these these courses and make them appealing and successful is really kind of breaking that down, overcoming my biases testing, experimenting in the classroom. That's why I believe being in the classroom is so important to try your content out and refine it. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of been the biggest thing for me. And, and um, I mean, students will only keep on 
picking the subject, we're putting it out there in the funnel, but they'll only keep on picking it if they are successful at it. And as students get older, um, when they're younger, they'll pick subjects that are, that are fun, but when they get to the pointy end of their schooling, they'll pick subjects that they're successful in, right, because that's where they want to maximise their marks. Mm-hmm. So it's no longer just about fun, it's about being successful. Um, so it's kind of walking that, that, that tightrope a little bit, yeah. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here. How much do you feel like this overlaps with uh, your old career in games? The way that it's... Because this is sounding like a very similar problem. You have to construct this really carefully calibrated challenge curve (laughs) to keep the player, or in this case, the student, engaged all the way up. You know, I never really thought about it like that. (laughs) I was never much of a games player. I was more of a games... like uh, I liked the role-playing games that didn't require so much Twitch actions. But... Yeah, it's a really good point you bring up, Meriden. It's it's the same type of thing, isn't it? It's awesome. that continual goal, reward, feedback with the foreshadowing of what's coming, right? Um, it, it's it's like, yeah, you really are taking them through this journey. Um, and I think the real thing that, that really mm-hmm. sets aside our discipline is just the, the real-world connection, that all the amazing things that you can create and make with it that isn't so apparent with, like, maths, right? Because I really don't see us being... Yeah. If I think a student loves maths and is good at maths, they should equally love and be as good with coding, if not more, because we bring so much more to the table in terms of concrete implementation, right? But we should just be getting all the math students. But students who love maths should just be loving us. And we, at the moment, we don't have that. We have students who love maths, don't pick coding. Awesome. All right. So the final question then. In one sentence, why Anvil? Hugh? Because it makes it possible for students to build industry-relevant, real-world applications using Python. Awesome. Tone? Yeah, really kind of the same thing. It's just uh, building on the the Python background that we've been setting up in the earlier years, and then they build something that's on the web, and they can there's buttons they can click on and share with their friends, and it has that real-world kind of flavor and linkages to, to real-world projects as well. All right. Williams and Tuan Hun from CS in Schools. Thank you both very much. Our pleasure. Thank you. It's great fun. You've been listening to Stories from the Workshop. I've been Meredith Luff. I've been talking to Hugh Williams and Tuan Hun from CS in Schools. You can find out more about them at csinschools.com. If you want to know more about Anvil, you can find us at anvil.works or find more episodes of this podcast at anvil.works slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was edited by Bravo Creative. The music is by Signal Smith. And I'll be back next month with more stories from the workshop. See you next time.